You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you have a Bible, grab it. Turn to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be tonight. We're going to continue in our series uh, our Marks of Maturity series, or we're walking through our four Marks of Maturity, Confess, Transform, Engage, Multiply, and tonight we come to Engage. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, and you can turn, uh, grab one and turn to page 944. And as we look here uh, in the passage, I want to start with a question that I think all of us will resonate with. Do you struggle to share your faith with others? Do you personally feel like you struggle to share your faith with others? I think it's easy for us to make rationalizations and talk ourselves out of things and have all kinds of ideas about what evangelism should look like. What sharing the gospel should look like, how it should be, how it should feel, what should happen. All kinds of scenarios in our minds. There's even data coming out this year that some folks believe, a good number of folks believe that were surveyed, believe that it was wrong for people, for Christians to tell other people that what they believe. And so in our culture, there's even a push against us actually sharing the gospel. And so we come to normal everyday life, we come to our friends, our family, our, the folks that we work with, and we find ourselves stuck between how do we navigate sharing the gospel with people that we care about. And we know that are separated from God. Do we not struggle coming to this idea? And as a church, when we want to, make, want to make mature disciples, we want to be people who engage our world with the hope of the gospel. That's what we mean when we talk about engaging. That we're a family of believers. A family of believers who are engaging our world with the hope of the gospel. There's a lot of things that we can engage our world with. A lot of good things. But we specifically want to engage our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ because why? It's the only thing that will make an eternal difference. It's the only thing that's going to help people, even in the here and now, no matter their circumstances, no matter their place in life. And so we, as a church, are going to make mature disciples who are going to engage our world. The question is, how do we do that? If we all come tonight, and I, and I think without us raising our hands, we all come tonight and we say, yeah, I think I struggle sharing my faith. I would put myself in that category. You know, like if we're all coming to this, how do we do this well? That brings us to John chapter 4, where I think we can see, we can feel our Lord and how He presses and how He engages this woman. And so when we look here at John chapter 4, here's what we're going to see. Jesus places himself in a conversation with an outcast woman to demonstrate only he satisfies our thirst. And what we mean by that is his spirit, our spiritual thirst. 
And, and we as disciples, as we come here tonight, as we come here weekly, as we, as we live life together, what do we have to know? What do we have to do? Jesus, what He does, the hope of Jesus provides disciples the ability to engage our world like He did. He is our example. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And when we come to, to this passage, we're going to see how we, in the same way, can have the same heart and the same disposition and the same laser focus toward the Gospel. And that's what we want to learn tonight. And so as we pick up in the story, in John's account, John is describing particular conversations that Jesus is having about His identity. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious leader. Someone who knows the Jewish law. Someone who knows who Jesus should be. But is blind. <coughs> who does not see who Jesus actually is and doesn't understand what Jesus talks about as being born again. And now Jesus comes to this woman at the well. This Samaritan woman who is an outcast. Who, who the Jews may think she is a sinner. So what we see is that Jesus is for everyone, no matter their background. And as we look at this passage together, I want us to consider, consider it in light of how Jesus actually engages this woman. I want us to see the only hope that we have is in Christ. He's the only one who can satisfy our thirst. But as people who have come to the well, who have come to Christ, who have living water inside of us, how do we engage those around us? There's nothing novel about what I'm going to share tonight. I'm not going to give you silver bullets to put in your gun to be able to make you the best gospel evangelist in the world. That's not what I'm going to do tonight. But what I want to do is to show you the heart of our Lord and hopefully as we talk about who Jesus is, That'll change just one word and one sentence and one verse at a time. So here's what I want to show you. I want to show you five ways that our hope in Jesus drives us to engage those around us. Five ways that our hope in Jesus drives us to engage those around us. Number one, hope in Jesus drives us to be bold. Our hope in Jesus drives us to be bold. Look there at verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He traveled through Samaria. Now, to give you some context, the Jews and the Samaritans, if you don't know, they hated each other. They hated each other. There was deep-seated racism. There was deep-seated religious disagreement. They hated each other. And the Jews even thought that the Samaritans were kind of just half people. They, they, they don't really matter. And so it's this context that Jesus places himself into. And notice, what does John say? Verse 4, he had to travel. Now there's geography that makes it much more easier for Jesus to travel through Samaria than around the particular terrain that he would have had to go around. That's a part of this. But also understand this kind of language that John uses can also mean a divine appointment. Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He, he, 
He could have went in whatever direction. And, and to, to be honest with you, terrain has not stopped Jesus in other places. We know that he took his disciples on the Sea of Galilee and then encountered a storm. He's not worried about the terrain or the weather or the conditions. He's going straight for this woman. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. I want you to notice how John sets up the story. Jesus leaves Judea because of potential conflict with the Pharisees and for John the Baptist's ministry. Jesus then travels to Samaria and through Samaria, which leads him to a well during what? <clears throat> during the hardest part of the day. Right? It's 12 noon, it's hot, this, they're in the Middle East, this is the, kind of, the time that you don't want to be outside. And it leads him to this well. He's thirsty. He needs something to drink. And all of this sets up as the encounter with this woman. And look at what Jesus does. Notice what he does. Boldly, he tells her to give him something to drink. Meaning she's going to grab the bucket and get into the well and draw it up and give him something to drink. Jesus breaks every social norm at this point in the first century just with this, give me something to drink. Jesus is a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. They don't do that. Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman. Just to give you a little more context about the relationship here, Jews thought Samaritan women were unclean from birth. Jesus breaks that barrier down. And He speaks directly to her. But also understand she was an outcast. Why do we draw that from the text? Well, she's going in the middle of the day when no one else would go. She did not expect Jesus to be there. She was going when she would not have to be seen so that she would not have to interact with anybody. But do you see what Jesus does? He's bold with her. He breaks down the barriers of Jews and Samaritans, of men and women. He boldly breaks down the barriers to, to actually engage her. <coughs> Jesus is not concerned. He is not concerned with the barriers, he's more concerned with this woman and who she is and what he can offer her. He boldly goes after her. What are the barriers that keep us from engaging our community? What are the barriers that we believe are there that keep us from sharing the gospel with our family members, our co-workers, our fellow students? What are the barriers that we have concocted that we've put up? Maybe they are real social barriers. Maybe they are real legitimate things. Maybe it's that we're afraid to be rejected. It's, it's hard. It's hard to be, you know, no, I don't want to talk about that stuff. That, that Jesus stuff or religion or I, I, don't, I don't want to talk about that. Or maybe you personally are afraid to be rejected and maybe they'll think differently about me. Maybe we don't want to be weird. Maybe we are unsure of the right answers that they may ask. They may ask questions that we don't have answers to. And we have all these thoughts in our minds and what we really just need to be able to do is boldly just enter the conversation and boldly just say, hey, here's where, here's where I think we are. 
This is what Jesus does. And, and if I'm honest with you, like most of us, if we're thinking about Jesus, at, you know, he didn't ask. He tells this woman to give him a drink. He takes a moment just to say, hey, give me a drink. And uses that boldness to actually step into a conversation with her. A lot of times, being bold just takes a little bit of intentionality. Or Jesus was thirsty. He asked for a drink. And he let it just go from there. We do not have to have all the answers. We don't have to have all the things in place. We just have to be bold to engage people. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus boldly engages this woman. But why? Why does he boldly engage her? It brings us to this second action of Jesus. Hope in Jesus drives us to relationships. Notice how Jesus leans into the moment. Leans into the conversation. Look at verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said, because his disciples had gone into town. So number one, he leverages the situation. He's thirsty. So he, go, so he goes to get water. He goes to the well. Number two, he engages the woman. <coughs> he could have actually just gone and drawn his own water up. That wouldn't have made a difference. Right? He could have got it and left. Everything would have been fine. But no, he engages her. Why? Because she matters to him. She matters to him. Verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She, she asked him, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who was saying it to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Number three, Jesus actually turns the conversation to the spiritual. He, he, it matters. This relationship with this woman matters at this point to him. I want you to think about all the conditions and all the social barriers that would have made it easy for Jesus just to pass by this woman. To pass by this well. Not even to sit down, not to stop. It's hot. It's in the middle of the day. I'm going to keep going. She's a woman, as I've already explained. That she's a Samaritan woman. Instead, Jesus is intentional to go after this woman by sitting down at a well and waiting for her. To see her. He's relational with her. She matters. I want you to see that He goes after her. And His disciples know it. When they come back here later after verse 26 and they, they begin to ask questions, they don't ask Him, why are you talking to her? They'd already learned that Jesus is very intentional. They'd already learned that if Jesus is talking to this woman it's because He wants to and because He cares about her. And those just, the disciples don't actually ask Him about that. So the question for us is, how are we intentional with our calendars? How are we intentional with our time? You can, you, I know for a lot of us, it's easy to say, well, we're busy, we have a lot going on, and you know, the calendar's full. But, how, but is the calendar actually, it should be a tool for us, but is it actually keeping us from being intentional? Is it keeping us? Is it hindering us? Is it actually... You know, enslaving us to not be intentional because we have a calendar. Ash and I, we've uh, since we moved into our house back in March, we take walks. It's, it got a little harder when it gets dark and it gets cold, but we took uh, lots of walks this uh, spring, summer, and fall, and we've t taken some when the weather's been uh, nicer, and we walk in the neighborhood. And, and even and what we've done is we've been able to invite people into our home, we've been invited this past uh, couple weeks ago for New Year's. We were invited into someone else's home. Like they invited us in. 
just by, just by making relationships, just by leveraging those conversations that we may have on walks or in the neighborhood. How are we intentional? It just takes a little bit of forethought, a little bit of care, that we, we put our care to pen and paper or to our phones and we schedule, hey, we're going to take a walk as a family. We're going to take a walk as a couple because we want to meet people. We want to see people. Those simple kinds of acts actually put us in the place just like Jesus was. It's no different than what Jesus did. What are those intentional things that we can do to put ourselves in the place to go after people and engage them? But two, I've got to ask, are we in intentional to make friends? Are we intentional to make friends? Like lasting friendship with people that we don't know. I know it's hard. I know it takes time. It takes effort. It takes energy. We need more friendships, and particularly more friendships with lost people. That's what our neighborhood has provided us with. We're new relationships and new relationships with people who may not know Jesus. It also means it's, that's friendships with people who think differently than us. Why? Because they don't know Jesus. They may come from a different place, different background. People that don't think like us. But what we can do is we can invite them to our table and we can learn who they are and then we can engage them with the gospel. But we have to actually take the time to make a deep friendship. It doesn't happen overnight. That's why we have to invite them to our table, where I think is the best place for friendships to, to grow and to blossom. Because if you make good food, they're probably not going to get mad at you. Right? They're probably going to be like, hey, this is good food. I may disagree with you, but this is really good food. And they may even come back if you make good food. The table is the easiest place for this. And I read somewhere this week that <clears throat> it's, you know, we talk about loving others. We talk about caring for others. <clears throat> and I read this in an article. Most of us are prepared to love others only up to the point where it begins to cost us. Let me read that to you again. Most of us are prepared to love others only up to the point where it begins to cost us. What are we willing to give up for the sake of people to be engaged with the gospel? Our time, our energy, our home, our castle, whatever it may be. What are we willing to give up so that people can know Jesus? We have to ask ourselves that question. The question I have to ask myself. And church, here's the deal. We can't do this on our own. We can't. We have to have each other around us to do this. A lot of times we come in evangelism with this lone ranger, this lone ranger mentality. Or we think we can do it by ourselves, but we can't. We weren't made to do that. Yes, God wants you to have specific conversations with the people around you. That's absolutely true. But we weren't made to do all of that by ourselves. We need our church family, right? How do we talk about this in our market maturity? We are a family of believers engaging our world. All of that is plural. All of that is plural because we know that we cannot do this by ourselves. We need our church to help us. Why? Because the church puts the gospel on display. What does Jesus say? They will know that you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. Your love for one another. You can't love one another if you're not in community with one another. We can't love each other if we don't see each other and spend time together. The litmus test for, for knowing Jesus is the community of God. That we love each other. Maybe one of the, the biggest reasons the early church was so 
it exploded so fast is because Peter and Paul were preaching about the gospel and the church was right behind them living out the implications of their faith together. Maybe that's why the church exploded so much. Maybe that's why we've seen revival over the years. Because the church backs up, this gospel is worth it. This gospel is worth it to me and it should be worth it to you. This is why we have missional community. That we actually spend the week, you know, a specific point in time together during the week. Because we don't just come on Sundays, but no, we're engaged with life with each other. In community and service and evangelism. It's not just... It's not just once a week, though. We talk about these as being, hey, these are just the centerpieces for us to do life together. And we invite others into our missional communities. We invite others into normal rhythms, whether it's a, a game or it's a show or a movie or you're just doing a cookout, whatever it may be. We are able to invite our lost friends into this. And the strength of our church family and our community can build what we need to build strong friendships to be relational with those around us this is where jesus goes he goes and he cares about this woman he engages her through a relationship but look where he ends up we're going to look at verse 10 where we're going to see the hope in jesus drives us to the gospel it drives us to the gospel jesus answered if you knew the gift of god and who was saying it to you give me a drink you would ask him and he would give you living water Verse 11, she asks, you don't even have a bucket, and the well's deep, so where are you going to get this living water from? Not only has Jesus engaged this woman by being bold, and he's relational, but he also turns the conversation to the spiritual. Jesus is no longer just talking about water from a well. This water is described as living water. But what does Jesus mean by that? This woman thinks that this water... What she thinks is a living water as in a stream coming from somewhere else. It's actually moving. But that's not the, the water that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about eternal life kinds of water. Jesus has turned the conversation to talk to her about this is the kind of thing that your soul needs, not just your mouth or your stomach. And she doesn't see it coming. She doesn't understand. Look at her response in verse 12. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. The woman doesn't think that Jesus is greater than Jacob, nor that he has living water. If Jesus was offering her fresh water without expending the energy in the bucket and going down into the well, then he would be greater than Jacob because Jacob had to dig a well to get the water. Or he was a cheap charlatan and was actually just not going to be able to give her water at all. But she doesn't think that, because verse 12, she's like, wait a second, what's going on here? It implies that she misunderstands what Jesus means. That she is wrong, that no, Jesus is greater than Jacob, and Jesus does have the living water that she's seeking. She can't understand. And so Jesus, look how he explains it to her. Verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But everyone who drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This living water is not, is not like any other water. This water is a spiritual water. A spiritual life. This water quenches the real thirst that we all have. 
This water does not come from a well drawn deep into the earth, but rather it comes from the Spirit through the Son. As the prophet Isaiah says, it is a well of salvation. Do you know how we must get straight to the gospel? Do we know that we have to, as a group of people, as individuals, we must get straight to the gospel? How can we proclaim that Jesus saves? The engagement of the people around us depends on us getting to the gospel. Look, I believe that Jesus called us to engage people by serving them, by acts of kindness and, and, and making relationships. All that is good and right. And those are ways in which we can then turn to the spiritual. But if, at the end of the day, if we miss the gospel, then we miss what's good. Like, what good is our service then? What good is that? It doesn't, it doesn't bring anything. Yes, we should do that and we should bring the gospel to bear on that situation. The gospel is both the means and the ends of our engagement. It drives us to engage and we pray it's the end of our engagement that people come to faith in Jesus. The gospel drives us to engage our world because we care and we are kind and we do serve and the gospel is where we want people to end up. But notice, this living water, this well of salvation springs up in us. The gospel, if it's changed you and me, then it has nowhere else to go, go but out. We don't share the gospel out of guilt or shame or condemnation. We share the gospel because we have been changed by that gospel. Yes, we've been commanded to. Yes, we have a vision of a kingdom that is full of all kinds of people and revelation. But that's not why. We share the gospel because it's changed you. It's changed me. It's why we're here. That's why we share the gospel. Not because we're trying to earn favor, not because we're trying to be better, but because it is going to come out of us. That hits home. Because why? The question is, why does the gospel not come out of me this way? The way that Jesus talks about. Transformation takes time. Engaging takes time. We will not be able to engage unless the gospel is rooted deep into our heart. Now look at the conversation. Look at verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I will not have to go thirsty and I will not have to come draw water anymore. A woman still thinks that this water she can have access to is physical water. I don't know about you, but Ashley hates going to the store multiple times during the week and multiple times during the month. So she's got to get everything just right on the list and she goes and she gets it all and she's not going back. Doesn't matter if there's an ice storm coming or not. She's not going back to the store. And so she, like this woman, doesn't want to go back to the store. This woman doesn't want to go back anymore. Give me this living water. If you could tell Ashley, you never have to go back to the grocery store again. She would sign up right now. No questions asked. Just like this woman. Give me this living water. Look how Jesus now transitions the conversation. He's got her hooked. She wants to know. Look what, look what he does. This brings us to our fourth point. Hope in Jesus drives us to confront sin. Look at verse 16. He says, go call your husband. He told her, come and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You've said correctly, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands, and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Overall, I want you to see how Jesus presses into this woman. He presses into her heart and into her soul. And he presses into her sin. 
Jesus doesn't leave it. He doesn't just dismiss it. He doesn't move on. But I also want you to, to notice how he does this. How he does this. He's tender and kind about it. He's a matter of fact, but he doesn't beat her over the head with it. First, Jesus commends her. Look at the attitude in the middle of 17. You have correctly said. He commends her. You have said, it's right, you don't have a husband. But, Jesus doesn't blast her, but he does turn it. Secondly, Jesus then drives to the truth. Whether she left out or that she's hiding. She may not have a current husband, but she's had five. And in, the, in, the, in that time and place, it would, would have been really bad to have more than three. And so she, again, as we talked about, is an outcast. She's, she's not someone that people want to be around. It would be easy for us to look directly at this and go, see, Jesus called out her sexual sin. Boom, right there it is. That's what we need to do. And of course He did. We know that He did that, and we should do that too, but why did He do that? Because He knew that this was destroying her. He knew that this was eating her. But there's a sin underneath this that Jesus goes after. It's the first layer. It's the action sin that we can all see. He goes after her spiritual thirst. Not this immorality, but hopelessness and guilt and despair and need that this immorality covers up in her. We can talk about the outward sins all day, but what are we, what are we doing about those sins that are actually deep in our hearts? Deep inside of other people's hearts. We may say, yeah, I'm, I'm prideful. Yeah, I'm prideful. But is it actually pride covering up our insecurity or pride covering up our mistrust in God? What's at the root of that? Until we get to the root of our sin, we will not be able to pull it out. And if we can't diagnose people's sins properly, what I mean by that is in the right way, then we're going to push people away. Now, of course, we like to hide our sin. We're going to get to that in a moment as well. But the church must deal with those sins underneath the surface. We must go after those root sins. It's difficult. It's hard. It's painful when we can confront sin in each other and confront sin in the world. But we must press into Jesus. Look what He does. He offers her spiritual water, living water. We have to press into Jesus being the only thing that satisfies us and others in the world. So he offers her, uh, offers her this living water. He confronts her sin, but then what does he do? He offers her the living water still. He offers her grace and kindness and mercy. Do you believe that God shows you grace tonight? Do you believe that there, I know that we may say we believe in Jesus, but do you really believe and hold on to that Jesus shows you grace tonight? Because he does. He shows you much grace. Do you believe that God shows others, even those who have hurt you dearly, grace tonight? If we don't believe, or if we believe that Jesus only shows us grace, we will not see others the way Jesus does. But if we believe that Jesus shows grace to everyone, then we can see them like Jesus does. At the end of the day, the church must be an unsafe place for sin. An unsafe place for sin but a very, very safe place for sinful people. That's what we invite people into. We're going to cut sin out. We're going to confront it. We're going to, we're going to do our best to destroy it. 
We're going to welcome sinners who are able, who are able to see that in the gospel they are loved and that their sin can be dealt with in Christ. So Jesus, He engages this woman with grace despite her sin. And how though? How can He do that? How can our Lord do that? Because that's really hard. To show grace, to see grace for others, to help people uproot sin. How does He do this? Number five. Hope in Jesus drives us to the cross. Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet, or our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews say that this place to worship is in Jerusalem. And this woman, she replies, after Jesus presses into her sin, she actually may believe that Jesus is a prophet. That's possible. I mean, wouldn't you, after he exposed sin that, that, that most people didn't know, wouldn't you believe that he was a prophet in this moment? Or maybe she's trying to cover up the conversation. We all know it's difficult to talk about our own sin. We all know that it's much easier to talk about theology or talk about sports or the weather. This is what she does. She turns the conversation. Right, we want to talk about, let's talk about the 30,000 foot view and not the, the 6 foot view right here. Let's talk about the, the stuff out there, not inside here. And I think this is what's present in her. She wants to talk about a theology of worship when that doesn't have to deal with her own heart. When it comes to our sin, let's be willing to confront it. Be willing to grow. Because if we don't engage our own sin, if we don't actually deal with our own sin, we won't be able to engage other people. It will hinder us. I don't know about you, but I can tell you, when I know when, I, when I'm continually fighting sin and falling short, it's a whole lot harder for me to go out and talk about the grace of God in my life. We must together fight sin and go after it. Verse 21. Look how Jesus responds to her. He told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's so much good stuff here, and as we, we want to land the plane, I want you to consider, though, what Jesus is really talking about. Jesus, in one way, entertains her question about the worship and where it's going to happen. He explains that, yes, worship of God matters, but the location doesn't. Yes, it matters that God has revealed Himself to the Jews through His law and His word, but no longer will people have to worship in a temple or revelation be confined to Israel. One day, we will be able to worship God in spirit and in truth, but how does that actually happen? It happens to the cross. It happens through the Savior of the world, the Son of God, coming to this world and to a cross and dying on it. What do I mean? How, how am I, where am I seeing that? Well, John uses this phrase often, but an hour is coming. And he uses that phrase to describe the hour that he's going to give his life to pay for our sin. You see, it is this Jesus who goes after this woman. And it's the same Jesus that goes after you and me. He was thirsty on a cross, but bore the wrath of God in our place. On the cross, Jesus was thirsty and bore our, our punishment for us. We no longer, we no longer have to be 
have to be separated from our God. We actually can be made righteous because our Lord was thirsty again and bore our sin on His shoulders. We're no different than this woman. But we are needy. We are broken. We are sinners. And if Jesus comes after me this way, that I've received grace, shouldn't I go after those who do not know Him in the same way? Shouldn't I offer grace to those who do not know Him? Shouldn't I show kindness and be tender and speak the truth to those in our community, to those in our world, to those that we don't even know? Why should I do this? Why should you and I, why should we live this way? Live like Jesus? Because He's the Messiah. Look there, verse 25. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one who is speaking to you, am He. Jesus is the one that we need. Jesus is the one that can change us. He is the one promised of God all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He is the promised one, the Messiah, the one who's going to come and save His people. One who can actually press into us and change us. As a church family, we can engage our community the same way Jesus did. We don't engage because we're trying to earn God's favor or earn God's love. We engage because we've already experienced that love. Just like this Samaritan woman, I am glad that Jesus came after us. Let's be intentional to be bold to be relational, to share the gospel, to confront sin, and confront sin the way Jesus does. And then to point people, the only reason this can happen is because our Savior died on the cross for you and for me. He is the only one that can satisfy our spiritual thirst. Church, I pray that we will be a people that love like Jesus, show grace and mercy and kindness, but also speak the truth like Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we we need you to make us like Jesus. It is our goal to be mature disciples. So to be disciples who look like your son. Father, we need you to make us like this. I pray tonight that we see the beauty of a Savior who comes after us. The mercy of a Savior who confronts our sin but provides a way to cleanse us of it. A Savior who gave His life, who was not selfish, but in humility laid His own life down for us. Would we respond to that Savior? Would we be people who engage our world with a hope that's never failing? God, we need You to help us look more like Your Son. We ask all these things in His name.